Hey guys, I'm lead pastor Noel Peepgrass, and I just wanted to welcome you to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a church family to be a part of, or feel called to join a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in our historic building at 218 West Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. You know, faith is uh, defined as complete trust or confidence in someone or something. And I was seeing a little bit about faith, of course, this week, as we see that the last part of this passage tells us that because of their lack of faith, they did not see many miracles in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And, uh, you know, I was, I was uh, you know, preparing for Christmas season to begin, and uh, one of my favorite movies uh, to watch this time of year is the movie Polar Express. I don't know if any of you uh, make the regular habit of watching that movie, but uh, one of the key tenets of this story, this Polar Express story, is the idea of belief, Right. And uh, in fact, uh, belief is what the, uh, the cartoonish Tom Hanks character, the, uh, the train uh, worker, uh, stamps on uh, the boy's ticket when he comes home. And, and the moral of the story is that it's the belief or the faith that's unlocked the ability to experience the Polar Express and Santa's workshop and the North Pole and all of that, right? And, and we know that that the story Polar Express is a, a children's story. It's it's a it's a fantasy. It's not based in uh, reality. But the idea of faith is uh, a very important idea uh, in our own faith, in our religion, in Christianity, and the ability to believe, to put our complete trust or confidence in Jesus is critical. And and in in this passage, it's the hinge. It's the turning point. The people's faith is what prevents them from being able to experience many of Jesus' miracles. And so I think there's something uh, for us today in this idea of faith, belief, or unbelief, or as Jesus uh, has been known to say or, or call his disciples, the idea of being a little faith is something that we would want to avoid. Before I get too far into my sermon, I want to just uh, point out the context here that we're entering. We've we've just uh, finished hearing about Jesus' sermon on parables, or his sermon of parables. And, and if you remember, Jesus was uh, preaching from a boat in the water <laughs> to the crowd who had gathered around him uh, and was now on shore. And it, it seems that he's now moved on to his hometown. His hometown was Nazareth, as we know. And you know, the first thing we find about Jesus in this story is that Jesus is a churchman. He's uh, he he's more than just a, a wandering sage, you know, uh, bound to the wilderness. Sometimes we can think of Jesus this way. Uh, Jesus actually embraced the institutional church, and I think that there's something for us in that because so should we embrace this uh, idea of the organized church, the church gathered. It says in this passage that Jesus was teaching in a synagogue. He goes to his hometown, and the first thing he does is go to church and teach 
in a synagogue, you know, and, and the church ain't perfect. Raise your hand if you've had an experience of church hurt. You know, I think many of us have had an experience of church hurt. Uh, the church ain't perfect, but it is his. And Jesus embraced the institutional church. And, and so perhaps so should we. So here's Jesus now teaching, uh, not in a rowboat <clears throat> or a sailboat or fisherman's boat, but in a synagogue. And uh, this, this passage at the end here of Matthew 13 really should be tied, I think, to Matthew 14. And so that's why uh, I'm including this passage here as we end the, the uh, Sermon of Parables and we begin this Matthew chapter 14 stream of thought. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, the Sermon of Parables, was really all about the doctrine of the kingdom of heaven. And this, this passage... Uh, is included in chapter 14 because chapter 14 is all about the doctrine of human response. And so we're going to see in this upcoming chapter um, five different responses to Jesus. And we can look at each one of these responses as a type of soil, like what we, we heard Jesus teach about in the parable of the soils. Uh, the first uh, response to Jesus that we're going to see is the response of Nazareth, which is rejection. Rejection. Rejection by his hometown. The people that knew him the best and who you might expect would have received him with great joy. Instead, we're told they rejected him. We also see rejection in our second story, which is about John the Baptist and the beheading of John the Baptist at the hands of Herod Antipas. We see in that story, again, a soil that's too hard and actually uh, rejects Jesus. And then in the two middle stories in chapter 14, we're going to see uh, a, a response of reservation. This kind of represents uh, the middle two soils, distracted, moderate in reception, shallow, rocky, thorny, weedy, reservation. We see reservation in the feeding of the 5,000 story where Jesus' disciples really weren't, uh, didn't believe that he could answer their basic needs and the needs of the people who were following him. And then we see the story of uh, Jesus walking on the water. And Peter, who comes alongside Jesus and also walks on the water, at least for a bit, until he loses faith because of his fears. And so we see in these two stories, the feeding of the 5,000 and the story of Jesus walking on the water, we see reservation. We see moderate reception at times, but a mixed response is what we mostly see. Finally, in the last few lines of chapter 14, we see the good soil demonstrated, the soft soil that's ready to receive Jesus. We see this reception in the outsiders from the town of Gennesaret. And once again, this is uh, extremely odd that the outsiders are so willing to receive Jesus. We would have expected that it would have been the Nazarenes, his hometown crowd, that would have received him. But instead, we learn in chapter 14 that Jesus has actually received the best, the most willingly by the outsiders of Gennesaret. We learn in this chapter, chapter 14, that real faith is rare. In fact, four out of five, it would seem, reject Jesus. And yet, some do believe. Frederick Dale Bruner, the commentator who I've been drawing on heavily in these, uh, these teachings from the book of Matthew, he says it this way. He says, the church today suffers from a weak because too optimistic doctrine of humanity. We believe in the upside of the gospel, 
that Jesus saves. But we do not easily believe in the downside, which is that people badly need saving. He says that the natural man sees himself with too flattering of an eye. I'm here to tell you today that the good news of the gospel comes with some bad news, that we're sinful and in need of a Savior. But I've got some very, very, very good news for you this morning as well, that if you need a Savior, you can have a Savior. If you need Jesus, you can have him. And so we're going to see in this chapter 14 uh, a theme of people coming to God, whereas in chapter 13 we saw a theme of God coming to people. In chapter 14 we're going to see a theme of how people come to God. We're also going to see some Advent themes. At least that's my attempt at making this series in the book of Matthew, which really doesn't have much to do with Christmas. We're going we're gonna to try and look at it through some Advent perspective since it is Christmas time and we all love Christmas so much and we've got families like the Plymans who read so awesomely this morning and lit that candle, the candle of hope. So we're going to take a look at these passages in the next few weeks, even through an Advent lens, and it's really powerful uh, to consider uh, as we saw in Matthew chapter 2 where the Magi were the ones that received Jesus as king right? The pagan magi, they were the ones in Matthew chapter 2 that received Jesus as as king. And we would have expected the Jewish leader, Herod Antipas, we would have expected him, the Jew, to receive Jesus as king. But instead, it was the pagan magi who come to baby Jesus, the young Jesus, with their gifts. Also, another thing we see in this Advent theme as we look to that perspective is the longing for a Messiah, right? Through the prophecy candle, We see the candle of hope being represented this morning. Uh, These people have waited and longed. We've waited and we've longed perhaps too, but we can still miss Jesus. Even though we wait and we long for him, we can still miss him like the Nazareth folks if we're not careful. See, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah. We're talking about the prophecy candle. Those prophecies from the book of Isaiah, they pointed to this man, Jesus. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecies that we read in the book of Isaiah. He's the Messiah the entire Hebrew Bible was pointing towards. What does this prophecy candle have to do with today's sermon, you might be asking? Well, let me give you a definition that I think will be helpful. The candle of hope. And what does hope mean? Hope is the grounds for believing that something good may happen. It's the grounds for belief. Hope is the grounds for belief, and belief unlocks the power of Jesus, as we see in this story. So there's my Advent tie-in. You like it? All right, cool. In today's message, I want to share three consequences of of unbelief. We'll go verse by verse through this little story, and I, I believe that there's three consequences of unbelief that we see in this story. And so unbelief is a bit of a theme here uh, because of the unbelief of the Nazareth. Uh, folks, they did not see many miracles where we find in this story. Let's go to the beginning of this passage, verse 54. It says, coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They asked. See, the Nazarenes knew the Messianic prophecies. All the ones that I just referenced, the ones from the book of uh, Isaiah and beyond, 
The Nazarenes knew the Messianic prophecies. They knew them incredibly well. Did you know that just like a conservative estimate says that the, the Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies, at least 300 Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled specifically through the life of Jesus. I mean, shouldn't these Nazarenes have known better than anyone? Things like his virgin birth. I mean, they knew his family. They knew Mary. They knew Joseph. Shouldn't they have known that he was from the line of David? And of course they would have known the prophecies, right? They were students of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. Wouldn't they have known that he was from the area that had been prophesied about? But still, it's not enough to overcome their unbelief. How about this? See, not only did they, did they know probably these prophecies that, that were being fulfilled in Jesus' life, or, or they should have known or should have seen, they also had seen all his miracles because they, they, they had a front row seat to the life and ministry of Jesus, and yet they questioned his divinity. They questioned his messiahship. So many of us think that if we just had an experience of God's power, our faith would be transformed. But their unbelief had blinded them. Their unbelief had blinded them. And it's, it's with this heart of unbelief, it's with this, these blinded eyes, this blinded vision, that these people would, would have asked for a sign in a, in a few chapters earlier. You'd think that because they'd seen his life up, up front, they would have believed in his divinity. They would have seen his messiahship. But even though they'd seen his power, because they were blinded, even though they were amazed by his teaching, it says that they were amazed by his teaching. They were amazed by his miracles. And yet because of their blindness, their experience was not enough to convert their doubts. It was not enough to transform their doubting hearts to belief. In the end, they were blind to see him. It's like we learned from Jesus in his sermon of, uh, of parables. Evidently, there's a way to hear without really hearing and a way to see without actually seeing. And God, I pray that our eyes would be open, that our eyes would be open and our ears would be ready to hear that our hearts would be the good soil that sees Jesus for who he really is. Their unbelief had blinded them. The second thing we see in this passage, the, the second consequence of unbelief is that unbelief poisons our hearts. In verse 55, 56 and 57, let me read. It says this, uh, after they had said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? The next question they, they ask is, isn't this the carpenter's son? And they go on with more questions. Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And it says in verse 57, key phrase, and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. See, the initial response of the Nazarenes is, is surprise and excitement at the teaching of Jesus. We just read that they were amazed at his miraculous powers and his wisdom. Quickly, however, 
their excitement is turned to offense as the questions mount. It reminds me of the phrase, maybe you're familiar with this phrase, the phrase that familiarity breeds contempt. I wonder what they're thinking as they see Jesus say these very wise things and perform these miraculous acts. They've certainly heard what people are saying about Jesus, and perhaps they start to compare. You've heard it said, the comparison is the thief of joy. Maybe they compare themselves like, hey, he's not better than me. He's not better than us. We know his family. We saw him grow up. Maybe they're jealous. Like, who does he think he is? He's not better than me. Their familiarity, it would seem, has, has bred contempt. And, you know, their surprise, it, it could have led them to go back to the Old Testament scriptures and read about these prophecies of a Messiah and do a little cross-referencing, right? Isn't that what we should do when we have questions about matters of faith? We should go to the scriptures. They could have gone to their scriptures and checked about the prophecies that they knew. But instead, because of their poison hearts, they were led to question and to doubt. They're asking questions that they're really not even looking to have answered. They've made the answer, their own answer. And this is why they ask the question, how could this be? We know this guy's family. He's very human. They probably thought, man, we've changed this kid's diapers. We've seen him run and play, laugh, cry. He's very human. It reminds me of how prone we can be to judgment towards others. Aren't we so prone to judge others? See, Nazareth's mistake is it's not that it thinks Jesus human, but that it thinks if he is so human, he cannot be the Messiah. They get mixed up in his humanity. They miss his Messiahship because of his humanity. Unless you think that we're incapable of doing this, I believe that we do this too. Let me give you a few examples. Have you ever heard someone question the Bible because it was written by humans? This can't be God's divine word. It was written by Paul. I mean, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He killed a bunch of Christians, for example, right? The Bible can't be God's word. It was written by humans. We reject it because of its humanity. Or maybe you've heard people say, the Bible's too patriarchal. That can't be right. We've progressed out of patriarchal hierarchies in our culture. Or maybe some would say it's too hard to understand. There's too much complexity in the Bible. There's too much variation. There's different styles. There's different genres. I don't know how to understand the Bible because it's written by humans. I'm just a human. It's limited, therefore. So I think even today we reject Jesus' Messiahship because of his humanity. And, and let's think about the church, Christ's church. In his church, we see humanity on full display. In fact, the church is his all-too-human family. And it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? On one hand, the church is Christ's great means for reaching the world. And we believe that here at Exeter Valley Church, that 
that the church, our little church, and the big church, the global church, is Christ's plan for reaching the world. That's amazing. But on the other hand, the church is also the world's great means of rejecting Jesus and his Messiahship. The world has taken the failures of the church and pinned them to our Lord. It's the world's great means of rejecting him. So the church and the humanity of the church is like a double-edged sword. Oftentimes, the world has concluded that uh, the, the church is too imperfect to be God's answer. And these people in Nazareth, they conclude that Jesus is too much like them to be the Messiah. We do this, like I said, we do this too when we're met with the humanity of biblical authors. We do this when we reject God's message because of his leader's humanity. Think about this scandal or that scandal. See, I told you, Christianity is just not true. But listen, Jesus is not less messianic for being human, nor less divine for having come from such ordinary stock. In fact, as you know, it is the glory of God to stoop low. Paul, the apostle, says it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 10. He says that weakness is strength. In my weakness, he, Christ, is made strong. In my weakness, he is made strong. Weakness is strength in God's kingdom. It's the way of God's upside down kingdom to use those who we would least expect. It is the glory of God to stoop. When we encounter difficulties with scripture or hypocrisies in the church, or when we encounter the humanity of Jesus, we ought not lose faith like the Nazarenes because the gospel is contained in earthen vessels. It's in our weakness that he is made strong. The third consequence of unbelief is that unbelief robs us of our joy. Verse 58, the most damning words in this passage, it says, And he did not do many miracles there in Nazareth because of their lack of faith. See, their lack of faith, their unbelief, becomes the obstacle to the miraculous. You've heard it said, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. See, but there's a tension between our faith and God's sovereign hand. I mean, he, 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 after all, can do what he wants to do, healing even where faith is not present. We saw that, uh, for example, in the story of Jesus healing the two demon-possessed men, the ones who uh, had their demons uh, sent into the swine. You remember that story? They didn't ask to be healed. God can do what he wants to do. But there does seem to be a tension between our faith and God's sovereign hand because we see in these stories that ordinarily faith is the way to Jesus' help. And where faith is not present, not much happens. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But with just a mustard seed of faith, we can see mountains moved. In Jesus' miracles and his healings, his power partners with human faith. Isn't that miraculous? 
that the divine Son of God has chosen to partner with humans like you and like me. I've often thought that this is, this is like one of God's worst ideas. Why would God partner with us? But yet we see this tension between divine power and capability, between God's sovereignty and our human response and responsibility. We learn in this story that Jesus partners with those who are full of faith. We learn in this story that the faithless will not see many of God's miracles. As we come towards the finish line here, I, I believe that if, if we look at Scripture, we, we'd have to agree that it's our lack of faith that prevents us from seeing the power of God come in, in mighty ways. And what I mean by that is we see stories of Jesus healing them all time and time again, not healing some, not having some success healing people. We see Jesus move powerfully. Great healing, great miracles. And yet in our day and age, we, we, we've got to be honest, we, we don't experience the same success rate. And I believe it's in part because we, we look at miraculous activity with skepticism, don't we? We're a lot like those from Nazareth. We're, we're, we're pointing fingers. We're trying to find the crack all the time. You know, we say things like, oh, that miracle, uh, that, that's not a miracle. That's just for show. That's a magic trick. There wasn't an actual healing that took place there, right? Maybe we'll say when we've seen miraculous activity or, or the power of God at work, maybe we'll say things like, oh, that's just manipulation. That's ostentation. That's attention-grabbing behavior. It's, it's coercive. It's dangerous. It's crazy. I don't want to look that dumb. I don't want to feel out of control. I don't want to be that needy. Look, you guys, we've got room to grow here. We've got room to grow here. I've got room to grow here. See, we're most often little faiths, amazed, amazed on one hand at what God can do, amazed at Jesus' promise of salvation, but yet skeptical, not wanting to be bamboozled or tricked or coerced or made to look dumb in front of our community. So the question I have for you today is simple. In what ways do you say, isn't that the carpenter's son? In what ways have you said or poked holes in Jesus' character, his divinity, the way that he works, his miraculous power? If you're anything like me this morning, that question is, uh, is a bit challenging. In what ways do I miss Jesus' divinity, his messiahship, and there, therefore, based on my unbelief, miss the opportunity to experience more of his miracles and his power in my life. I can, uh, I can feel fairly uh, faithless at times. Anyone agree? I can feel uh, prone more to unbelief than to belief. And I was reflecting even this morning as I, uh, as I prepared and, and, and made the final uh, readiments to give this message. I just thought, man, God, Give me the faith to believe that you are who you say you are and that you can do what you say you can do. I want to see 
you move, Lord, like I've seen you move in the stories on the pages of this book. And I thought of the passage in Hebrews 12, where it says that we fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and initiator of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We've got to fix our eyes on Jesus. You've heard me say this many times, but we've got to behold him rightly. We don't want to behold the Jesus our culture would point us towards. We don't want to behold the Jesus even that maybe we were taught, you know, on on flannel graphs. We want to behold Jesus rightly. We want to behold him rightly. We want to fix our eyes on the true Jesus because he's the author and the initiator of our faith. And we can look to him. And when we look to him, I believe he reaches his hand towards us and he gives us faith. Let's pray.